to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. Today, we've got our first wildland firefighter on the podcast. So we'll get about as up close and personal to fire as I want to get. The grim headlines about COVID-19 say that it's spreading like wildfire right now after a dip in infections this summer. Another problem spreading like wildfire right now are actual wildfires. At the time of this recording on November 10th, there are 47 active fires burning 3.7 million acres in the United States. That's only part of the 2020 U.S. total so far, which is 8.6 million acres burned. We acknowledge our frontline heroes who are treating COVID-19 patients, keeping hospitals and testing sites open, and saving lives. But who are the people fighting wildfires in California, Colorado, Oregon, and Montana? Just like a pandemic, big fires need a coordinated response. So how does it get done? One of the folks who makes it happen is this week's guest, John Trapp. He's a fire behavior analyst who scrutinizes wildfire variables like fuel, weather, and topography to predict the rate of spread and other important characteristics of the fire. This then informs how the fire will be fought, and as John will gladly tell you, it's all very geeky. But it might not even be the geekiest or even the most interesting job John has had. He started off as an intelligence analyst in the Air Force, and followed that up with a master's degree in conservation biology, where he spent time in the field monitoring the Mexican gray wolf population. And all the time, he's observing how the climate is changing on the front lines of nature. But I'll let John walk us through his unusual career path. And then we'll talk about what he does as a fire behavior analyst, some of the changes he's noticed in recent wildfires, and what it's like to get up close and personal with gray wolves. John, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Yeah, thanks. It's great to be here. You're the first firefighter we've had on the podcast, but you've had an interesting career path from a stint in the Air Force to studying conservation biology and endangered wolves to fighting wildfires. Is there a common thread to your career path? Well, I'd like to think so. As we unravel our our past, uh, looking at it from when I was in the Air Force, I was a intelligence analyst. And part of that job involves taking a lot of different information and putting it together and trying to predict outcomes. So I think that analytical mind was started, started to be built uh, during that time frame. I was also, I flew in F-15s and F-16s and that was a, a lot of fun, but I found myself uh, looking at the ground and the landscapes below me a lot. I had been interested in wolves for a long time. And when I was stationed in Germany, I had heard that wolves were recolonizing eastern part of Germany. And I wanted to go see that. So on my days off, I would travel out to eastern Germany and go tracking and set up a tent and uh, look for wolves. Didn't ever see any while I was there, but it, it kind of definitely started that that hunt. From there, I, I when I got out of the uh, Air Force, I was able to use the GI Bill, go back to school, and get a master's degree in 
conservation biology and study wolves more specifically. And I worked across the West, started in Arizona and New Mexico with the Mexican gray wolf. So and what, I mean, what kind of work were you doing? Were you up close and personal? Yes. Yeah. So the, the, the wolf job had three main parts to it. So the first part was that we were tracking and monitoring the wolf population in conjunction with the Endangered Species Act. And that involved primarily trapping and radio collaring. And then once again, flying, which put me in the air again, looking down onto the ground. But now uh, I was looking for wolves. So we would track that and keep so we knew what the status of the population was and how they were how they were doing towards meeting the objectives of you know being a recovered species and the next part of that job would be conflict resolution between as i mentioned arizona new mexico idaho wyoming montana there was a fair amount of conflict <laughs> with wolves um, and by conflict do you mean with uh, like ranchers Yes, um, most of the conflict involved with you know livestock depredations or losses of livestock or a perceived loss or a worry of loss. And so wolves definitely elicited a lot of passion, anger. Sometimes they were able to focus anger towards rural ranching communities, sometimes have an anger towards the government. And they were able to focus that anger at the wolves and the people that were there with the wolves. So, but I also worked with a lot of ranchers that, you know, they're, they're really good people. They were just trying to do their, their business on the landscape. And so we were trying to figure out how to minimize livestock losses, also keep the wolves alive. So the one thing that I found interesting early on was that as I was out there working with wolves and meeting these ranchers is... They, uh, you know, I had one rancher right away say, you brought those wolves here. And uh, I was able to say, actually, I was serving overseas in the military when the wolves were reintroduced. And that, that brought with it, especially in that community, a lot of respect. So they were able to, they would actually step back and go, oh, well, thank you for your service. And that opened a door to a lot of the people and the ranchers I was dealing with. So I found that as quite the benefit. They uh, were able to respect that and, and realize that I had done other things besides just working with the wolves. And then the last part was the education and the outreach part of it, which was constant because there's so much misinformation about wolves. And there's a lot of misinformation about wildfire as well. Give me an example of some of the misinformation about wolves that you encountered. Sure. There was a lot of irrational fear of wolves being dangerous to humans. In New Mexico, they were building these shelters so that the children, while waiting for the school bus, could be protected from the wolves. Or thoughts that wolves would you know, reproduce endlessly and multiple times a year, which is not the fact. They only go into heat once a year in the April time frame, February. And also the thought that if wolves weren't kept in check, that they would overrun all the native game and kill everything on the landscape, which I'd follow up with explaining that wolves and, and ungulates or, or native game had been on the landscape for tens of thousands of years, and that didn't happen then. So I'm not sure why they thought it was going to happen now. Tell me about an encounter you've had with a wolf. 
Yeah, I've, I, the, you know, wolves are amazing creatures. And I remember one time I had to hike into an area. This was in Arizona with the Mexican gray wolf to to figure out if this this wolf pack had had pups. With radio collars, we can tell when they, they have pups because they kind of localize in a region during the denning season. And uh, we, uh, but we had no idea. And so I had to go hike into this area and uh, I had a radio telemetry receiver and I was hiking up this ridge and I was, I knew I was getting close because the beeps were getting louder and louder. And I turned down the gain on my, my, my receiver. And finally I got to the point where I actually disconnected the antenna because I was so close to the wolves that I didn't even need the antenna on the receiver. So I had my head up, I'm looking for them, look down and there's a fresh wolf scat right under my, under my feet. And I looked a little bit further and uh, a head of a wolf just kind of raised up from a ridge and looked at me. And it was about maybe 20 yards away from me. And then right next to it, another wolf head. And on the other side, another wolf head. And I had three wolves staring at me. I was by myself. And uh, so I was kind of looking at them and they were looking at me. And then suddenly the alpha uh, male started running towards me. And then the other two joined. And that's very un uh, characteristic of the wolves, even if you're in their in their denning area, and they ran till they got about ten yards away from me, and then circled me. And they were the three of them, three wolves were circling. And the last wolf I could tell was a yearling or a from last year's litter because it was hopping, trying to look at me. They just weren't used to having humans right there, and so they were just trying to get a good view of me. And they circled me several times. And then they went back to the ridge where I first saw them. And then all three of them started howling. It was the alpha male, alpha female, and a yearling. And I was like, oh, wow, this is really cool. But I don't know if they've had pups yet. (laughs) And just then, in this little drainage next to me, I heard all the wolf pups start howling back. So I knew that they had had pups and reduced successfully. And, and so I was able to kind of turn around and walk out from that, er- that area. And it was a fun... Wow, the, the that's alpha amazing. The escorted me out of there as I walked out. So he kind of followed me and flanked me and just made sure I was leaving. And then he left me alone. So you, you then moved from working with wolves to firefighting. Tell me about that transition. Well, it seemed just about every summer that I was out trapping and radio collaring wolves that at one point or another, I would have to leave an area or pull traps because a wildfire was burning. (laughs) So one of the largest fires that burned in this area where I live in Montana, I actually flew over the origin of that fire um, earlier in the day, tracking wolves, and then later a lightning strike uh, hit that same location and started a fire, which is where most of the wildfires in the West in Northern Rockies, they come from, you know, lightning strikes. So it was interesting to see when I, that fire burned for several weeks. And when I returned in uh, above the fire area and in the airplane tracking wolves, there was this one drainage where the wolves, they were in this drainage every time I flew, day after day. And that's a bit unusual for the wolves because they they cover several hundred square miles for a home range up to 500. And up in Alaska, you're looking at a thousand square miles. So they move a lot. They cover a lot of ground and to keep finding them in the same spot was strange. So after 
a few weeks of this, I decided I needed to hike into the area and see what was going on. And in the process, I had found that the fire had burned up this one particular canyon and there was a lot of smoke coming up the canyon that ended up asphyxiating a small herd of elk. And they were all dead there in that canyon. And the wolves were just staying there and eating these dead elk. So I guess this relationship of of fire and wolves, it was around me. And so I was also volunteering at the local fire department search and rescue organization. And as an EMT, a job opportunity opened up, which would allow me to be with my family more than I would, would be potentially on the wolf side of things. So I made a decision to switch careers to fire and paramedicine and in the process trained as a wildland firefighter and found very quickly that that was my my passion it was very interesting and it got me out on the landscape to continue to to be with my feet on the ground and dealing with you know wild forces of nature we'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview Got Science is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, PRX, and all the usual podcast outlets. For a transcript and links to additional resources from this episode and a full bio of our guest, head over to gotsciencepodcast.org. If you like the podcast, you can help us reach more people by simply sharing the podcast with your friends, coworkers, and on your social networks. Another way to help us get noticed is by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. It's quick and super easy. And finally, if you're on Twitter, come on over and talk to us at GotScienceUCS. Now let's get back to our interview. So let, let's talk wildfires for a bit. So when, when I think about firefighting from where I sit, which is on the East Coast in a, well, in a small town, but in a city setting, I see a fire on television. It might be three or four alarm fire, sometimes a five alarm fire. It's a house or a building and uh, surrounding towns will come and they fight this fire. And the ratio of firefighters and equipment to fire is pretty high. And I think about what you're doing fighting a wildfire where it's just immense amount of land that's burning. I mean, what it, what is the strategy for fighting something that huge? Well, you know, all, all fires start small. And, and most firefighters in the United States are volunteers. So there's over a million firefighters and... Only a third of those are, are full-time paid firefighters. So it is common, like you described, that a, a fire starts and then you have several local fire departments respond with their engines. So from a, wild, from a structure side, it's a little bit different approach to a wildland fire side. So you, you are currently, your position is fire behavior analyst, which I'm thinking back to your your work in the Air Force being an analyst. I'm thinking you're kind of a data geek at heart. What What is the role of a fire behavior analyst? Uh, you're right. It is a little bit uh, geeky, and I do like 
that uh, I like the idea of trying to predict what's going to happen. And so when the fire first starts, we're just kind of, all right, we just got to get there and get on it and try to knock it down. But as a fire continues to grow or, or exceeds our ability to suppress it, then it starts to span multiple days and multiple operational periods. And that means that we're going to fight fire all day and possibly some in the night. And then the next morning we're going to get up and we're going to attack and hopefully have a plan and almost always have a plan. (laughs) But that plan is really contingent on what we're expecting the fire to do. And that's contingent on three main factors. We have the fuels, the, the, the materials that are burning, mostly natural, but fuels also include structures. We have the weather. What's it going to do? What's the temperatures, the relative humidity, the winds? And then we have the topography, where you have things like canyons or upslope. Fire likes to go upslope and and you have really explosive fire growth when you have an upslope canyon and a, and a wind that aligns with it. So the fire behavior analyst is using uh, science to put all these things together. We plug all these variables into models that can give us important information like rate of spread, like how, how fast is this fire going to move, flame lengths, how how tall is this fire going to be coming up? Because if it's four feet or less, which you might get off of grass, we could go direct. We could go right at the head of the fire and we could knock it down. But when it starts to exceed four feet, getting up into four to eight feet flame lengths, and we need, then we need engines and we start needing dozers and then we're needing aircraft and retardant and helicopters with bucket drops and and it completely starts to change our overall approach from direct fire attack to an indirect method. And so the fire behavior analyst is critical in figuring out what we're dealing with. But fire behavior analysts don't usually get mobilized until it's a large fire. So a, a large incident like what we've seen in well, in Colorado and, and Alaska and California We've seen them in Texas and New Mexico. So it's a big team at that point. You're talking hundreds of firefighters, maybe thousands before you start to have a dedicated fire behavior analyst. To get a sense of the size of these fires, I looked up the size of the state of Rhode Island, which is just under 800,000 square feet. So how large are the fires that you're dealing with? We have huge portions of of. America that are burning um, every year, and that 8.6 million is is more than the 10-year average. But if you start to look at the averages over even the last five years, we are rapidly growing in the number of fires, the length of the fire season, and the total acres that are burned. So it's definitely even in the 14 years that I've been firefighting, which is really a blip and obviously fire ecology and fire landscape studies, is it's changing dramatically. And we're seeing things burn. I was on a fire uh, at Point Reyes um, outside of San Francisco 
that the portion of the of the of the park that we were in had no human record of ever burning and we were watching green ferns burn up a slope with all of the firefighters standing there with their jaws dropped it's not it's not normal you don't see green vegetation burn like that and especially in an area that had never burned so things are definitely changing why would that be so with with climate change we see changes in large scale weather patterns and changes we we all know about rising temperatures but in addition to rising temperatures we have changes in in the climate and the patterns above us which change where moisture where where we have more precipitation where we used to have some that we don't anymore areas that used to have you know more rain are seeing less and we're seeing areas that have you know lightning that we didn't really have lightning before areas in Alaska and of course in California we had a huge lightning bust in August that there was just lightning hitting everywhere these are large scale pattern changes you know in in our climate that are a little bit hard for people to see unless they're in the middle of it watching it and they're and the people that i run into that live in these areas are they're just saying we've never seen this before do you see any parallels between endangered species management and and fire management yes i i do i i've Fairly quickly, when I started working with uh, wildfire, I was still involved with wolf education and, and outreach and continued that on the side. But something that stood out pretty quickly, and I came across a poster that kind of cemented it. It was from the 50s. It was a poster of a U.S. Forest Service poster. It had a wolf on it. The wolf was made out of flames. And it said, don't unleash the beast on the forest. And they were using both of these symbols, both of these things that were, at the time, both considered bad. At the, at the time, all fire needed to be suppressed because it burned forest. It, it took away habitat for, for wildlife. And, of course, logging, it impacted logging. And we had strong messages from Smokey the Bear and, and Bambi about how wildfire was bad. And, and then around the early 1900s, we had the same transition with wolves, um, that all wolves were, were bad and the only good wolf was a dead wolf. And, and so both of the management um, approaches were to remove and stop all wildfire and all um, and all wolves just to remove it from the landscape as much as possible without really understanding the ecological consequence of doing both those things so the management approach was very similar um, and i found that very uh, interesting and then you know but there was a point where we started to recognize that we uh-oh you know <laughs> maybe we have done something we shouldn't have which um, humans occasionally do, right, as we figure out <laughs> what what we're doing. So then we started the process of trying to bring some fire back to the landscape and bringing wolves back to the landscape. 
So what if I put you in charge of doing an all new Smokey Bear campaign today? What would you have him advocate for? Well, I still I do believe that Smokey's message of, you know, don't be the one who starts the fire is a good message, right? We you don't have to be the one that forgets to put the your campfire out. Um, but the rest of the message and then maybe this the side of, that involves the Bambi and is that fire is a necessary part of the landscape that our forests have evolved with fire and many of the species in our forest are fire dependent which means that's how they you know regenerate in our forest so so i think the message is that yeah fire um is okay um under certain circumstances and helping people understand what those circumstances are but helping to prepare the landscape for the inevitable fire that will come so after a hundred years of fairly aggressive fire suppression, um, we have unhealthy forests because just like the wolves that cleanse the herd of elk to improve the elk um, health, frequent low and moderate intensity fires cleanse the grounds of the forest and do nutrient releases back and, and help also remove the the sick the the dying and the dead from the forest so so i think the message is we get, we have to find a place for for fire on the landscape but we need to we need to do some prep work ahead of time so what are some of the options for people who are living in these fire prone areas i think there are options but we have to understand that we are not going to be living without fire um, if you're living in a forest there will be fire it's coming so how to how do we prepare for that and i think a lot of people want to live in the forest you know approximately 60 percent of the homes that were built since 1990 have been built in what the wildland urban interface which is defined as where you know native or natural forest materials intermix with structures. That's the wild and urban interface. So, um, so if we're going to do that, we have to think about planning at the subdivision level, and we have to also understand what we're doing to habitat. So, we are anytime you put a subdivision in, right? You are destroying some sort of habitat. And so that always should be into take, taken into account. Well, John, I have so many more questions for you, but I think we might just have to do another podcast interview at some point. Um, you're doing amazing work protecting wolves and fighting wildfires and connecting the dots to climate change. Um, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Yeah, you're welcome. It was, it was a pleasure to be here with you. Well, that's it for this episode of the Got Science podcast. Got Science is made possible by the 125,000 members of UCS, and especially our partners for the Earth, the 13,000 supporters who make monthly contributions to help us stand up for science. Learn more at ucsusa.org partners. 
Special thanks to John Trapp. Editing by Omari Spears. Additional editing and music by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Worth and Jayu Liang. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. Come chat with us on Twitter at GotScienceUCS. Thanks. Stay safe, everyone. Wear your masks, and see you next time.